everybody. I am Jessa. I am Nick. And we are here with two very special guests, slash we are two very special guests. Guys, introduce. <laughs> I'm Heather. And I'm Scott. We are and status pending. We are indeed. And we are the Getting Off Podcast. So as is apparent by now, this is a special crossover episode. Should we talk about, we're all going to be meeting each other pretty soon. Yes. Which is going to be a fantastic opportunity for us and for lots of other people. Where are we going to be gathering? We are going to be together next month at the Chicago True Crime Podcast Festival. That is July 13th and 14th in, obviously, Chicago, Illinois. And we will be doing, you and I are doing two live shows, both of which have collaborators. Uh, We are doing a show at the Arrogant Frog on Friday, July 12th at 7 p.m., Tickets are on sale on the Getting Off Pod website right now. That's gettingoffpod.com slash live hyphen show. Our guest star, co-star, will be Kate Walinga from the Ignorance Was Bliss podcast. And then on Saturday, July 13th, at the actual True Crime Podcast Festival, we will be collaborating with Shiloh and Scott from LA Not So Confidential. And that will be happening as well. So we're going to be around. Uh, You guys are going to be around. It's going to be fun. It's going to be fantastic. We look forward to meeting lots of listeners, lots of fellow podcasters like our two friends here, lots of members like Kate and all of our collaborators who are part of our little sort of like podcasting friend universe. Our friends. Indeed. So what are we here to talk about collectively today? We are here to discuss a case that Heather and I have talked about a couple of times in our podcast as a what we call a dossier episode. When it was all going down, like when this case was in the news, actually before it was fully developed, and then afterwards, the Jamie Kloss disappearance from late last year slash earlier this year. Heather and I are going to lay out the facts of the case, and then we're going to turn things over to Nick and Jessa, who are, for those who aren't familiar... And Heather's done a crossover episode with you guys before. I'm sure we share many listeners, but for those who aren't familiar, uh, Jess and Nick are criminal defense attorneys and law partners in Wisconsin. Their podcast is getting off, as they mentioned. You have to listen to this podcast, one of our favorites. Heather and I listen to every episode. Mm -hmm. And I even say, guys, I don't know if you agree, I think this podcast is good for legal professionals and lay people alike. Mm -hmm. I think you can find enjoyment regardless of your expertise, which is really cool. I agree. I think that they lay it out in a way that everybody can understand it easily. So, Well, you guys are complimenting us. I want to offer compliments as well. (laughs) So uh, Heather was actually one of the first people I met in the podcasting community. Uh, We've had a mutual admiration for each other, I think, for a couple of years now. So I'm very excited to get to meet her in person. Uh, She's done wonderful work with her other show, Nature vs. Narcissism, and Status Pending has been a really great thing to listen to as well. I want to plug Scott because Scott and I didn't know each other. But the first time that we talked, we ended up, like, segueing into some four-hour-long conversation about, like, big philosophical criminal justice issues. And And Scott delightfully just let me do that. (laughs) Um, He engaged, and, you know, a lot of the stuff that Nick and I talk about on our show— 
is having like raising the level of discourse and the level of debate about these issues. And Scott, I think you and I agree a lot on some things. Uh, we differ on some things, but we had this really amazing like three to four hour conversation where we found some common ground and and agreed to disagree and debated, and it was really engaging. I think we were. I mean, I was up to like midnight just discuss things without you know getting mad at each other or that is a possible thing to do not that we disagree on you know a whole heck of a lot but i I like a good philosophical conversation too so that was fun we were probably boring the pants off of heather but she hung in no i was really interested but like when i don't know a lot about a topic i just sit back and listen so i can learn because i don't want to say something that just doesn't make sense i'd like to know what i'm talking about first but yeah it was really interesting actually i was just watching you guys go at it and it was great (laughs) to my mind this is yet another thing that has been such a delight about creating a podcast is expanding the universe of fascinating and interesting humans that you get to know. And I've enjoyed both of your shows and listening to you guys and learning from you and enjoy so much the relationship that, you know, we've developed. And I can't wait to meet you guys uh, person to person. Agree. Absolutely. And tickets are on sale for the actual festival itself. And we'll have a link for both meet and greets, including the, the one on, Saturday, right, for the actual festival that Getting Off is going to be involved in as well. We'll put those in the show notes for this episode. So let's get into the case, Jamie Kloss' disappearance. Uh, We'll just run through the facts, and it'll come to you uh, whether or not you follow this closely or not. As one of the big true crime stories of the decade, to say nothing of the year. So um, as we mentioned, this is going to be a crossover. We're just going to lay out the facts. We're going to break. We're going to send you over to the getting off feed for sort of the, the legal aspects of what culminates in this case. But Heather, you want to start us off where and when and how and all that good stuff did this get started? Okay, so a call was made to 911 at exactly 1 a.m. early on the morning of Monday, October 15th of 2018. At about 1.04 a.m., dispatcher logs indicate that the first responders had arrived to the residence and reported an apparent suicide but that opinion of the scene would change rapidly. So when police arrived, they saw the male victim, adult victim first. They saw right away the door had been kicked in, obviously the front door. The male victim was very near the door in a way that gave police the impression that the man had been answering the door when it had been broken down and that he'd been shot there while answering the door in the doorway. By 1.08 a.m., officers had cleared the house and had noted that two victims were down and unresponsive, and as the investigation began, law enforcement increasingly appeared to have considered the scene a possible homicide and not a suicide at that point. So pretty quickly, within like an hour or so by 2 a.m., investigators on the scene were requesting access to a drone to search the woods around the Kloss home uh, from the air. Jamie's parents, James and Denise, deceased inside the home, both shot and Jamie was missing. But they brought in those drones right away as one of their first steps. I I mean, I've never had a case with a drone. I don't believe I have either. And that's interesting. It it makes sense to me from in a location, you know, this is in far northern Wisconsin. It's in the middle of nowhere. Quite a rural area. So we're talking about a lot of land, a lot of space that would be difficult to search with humans. This is not a densely populated place. So that's an an interesting technique. I, I have not encountered it in a case in my career yet. Yeah. I'm glad you said that because it kind of reaffirms – I thought that was unusual too. 
they did it for the FLIR imaging so that they could see in the dark. I guess they were thinking that Jamie and or the person who was responsible for whatever happened to her was like there in the, the woods around the home. And they had access to the drone and they thought if we can bring this in and maybe we can find the person right away. That's not what ended up happening as we'll see. But they also deployed, Heather, this other piece of technology that was kind of new to me as well. Yeah, it was a pole cam. So just like it sounds, it's a camera that's attached to a pole, like a video surveillance system, which can rapidly be deployed to any source with power to enable a 24-7 monitoring of a scene, which I thought was really um, interesting because I haven't seen those even around here, even though my dad was in law enforcement. I don't recall ever seeing or hearing of those. So I don't know if that's like a, a thing like you were saying, like in rural areas or something. I'm not sure. So I can actually speak to that a little bit because I was part of a focus group that happened, oh, I don't know, I want to tell you 12 to 18 months ago uh, at the University of Wisconsin, and they were testing out different video imaging technologies for crime scene reconstruction. And there were two things that they've already introduced in sort of a limited scope capacity to various police agencies. One of them is what you're talking about. The other one is this 3D room scanner that they can set it up and it'll actually create like recreate a 3D walkable crime scene on the computer and i just was you know invited to participate to give feedback about if we had been seeing those or if they mattered and uh, so I know that that's fairly new technology. Police have been using it, I think, for a couple of years here in pilot programs. So it's not our, our police standard yet. I do think it might be going that way long term. And I've got some familiarity with this similar stuff here in Wisconsin, similar to what Jess is talking about. There um, is sort of a, a specialized team on the law enforcement side here in Wisconsin that their primary focus you know, up until relatively recently has been on um, crash reconstructions. So like, you know, vehicular crimes or, or, you know, vehicular crashes or accidents that are potential crimes. And they get called in and do a lot of, you know, very technical analysis, um, trying to reconstruct what happened and, you know, using physics and engineering to, to you know, draw conclusions about uh, what must have happened. Those folks, um, you know, I'm aware, have developed, you know, gotten uh, the use of new technology where they can do some of the things that we're talking about here. And, and I have had, I think, only one case so far, maybe two, where folks from that unit were brought in in a non-vehicular case to do some version of what we're talking yeah. about, to do sort of like crime scene, you know, highly technical mapping, like layout uh, of where things happen. And that is quite fascinating. It is. I think the thing that fascinated me the most about this was because it's a secret. Like nobody even knows that it's there besides like the, the people who put it up there. You know, it's nobody outside the investigation, I guess, would know that that particular scene would be under surveillance, which is pretty interesting. Pretty much. And I, I can't remember if we get to this later on or not. It was kind of a bizarre, disturbing side note of this whole case. But yeah. you might remember that they caught a guy breaking into the house mm -hmm. while the parents or while the relatives were at a memorial service for the parents yep. and stealing some of the personal clothing items of Jamie's. Yep. And that's how they caught that guy. Yeah. It turned out, obviously, very suspicious. And yeah. police were like, hmm, wonder if this guy's in, you know, involved. That, but, that was like a really delicately phrased. <laughs> suspicious, the guy breaking into the crime scene. Right. Should we look into this guy as a possible suspect, maybe? <laughs> yeah. Um, but he turned out just to be a creep. 
just to yep. be uh, uh, the police don't believe he was involved. They did catch him. They also, as a result of the surveillance, both on the scene and maybe from the video, but they had a couple of people driving all over the crime scene back and forth on the state highway there, I think, that they had to evacuate, asked to leave the crime scene that just kept driving back and forth, that they thought they investigated those people too as a possible link. By 2.30 a.m. now, so this is an hour and a half approximately after the 911 call, it's clear to the first police on the scene that this is a double homicide. And they also realized that Jamie, 13 years old, might have been there at the time and that now she was missing. Ground and aerial search of the surrounding area was underway. Police and volunteers began looking for Jamie as they, like you said, they believe she was in the house at the time, but now she's gone. There wasn't any evidence of who might have killed her parents either. And there wasn't really any evidence as to say at this moment in time whether she had anything to do with it, whether she knew the perpetrator, nothing. They just knew that she was missing and she needed to be found. And about 4.30 a.m., investigators made contact with security at St. Croix Casino. And I know in our dossier... Scott and I kind of looked into this a little bit, trying to see if there were any connections there. I don't think we really came across any that were worth anything, worth noting at all. So we're going to kind of skip over that for now. I'm still not aware of a connection with the casino. I think maybe they were looking for traffic, uh, road traffic. Maybe one of the cameras could visualize the road. Probably. But that didn't turn out to be directly linked, I don't think, to the case. Anyway, so now we're at 4.35 o'clock in the morning, about 4.50 in the morning where the sheriff's department issues a missing and endangered bulletin for Jamie. They didn't issue an Amber Alert for reasons that we talked about in our dossier episode, but you guys know there are specific criteria for an Amber Alert that this case at the time especially didn't meet. What's interesting about that is while they issued this bulletin to neighboring law enforcement that they basically said this child is missing, the parents are murdered, unknown suspect, there's not enough information for an Amber Alert. They went ahead eventually and issued the Amber Alert anyway, though. Some of what was was missing, I guess, initially was a description of the vehicle for an Amber Alert to be issued at that time. They thought that she was in some serious jeopardy, but they didn't have any information except for the victim to broadcast. They didn't have a suspect. They didn't have a vehicle. So while they eventually got a suspect vehicle, it, actually, I think two during the course of uh, the investigation, I think they actually updated the Amber Alert. Neighboring law enforcement was notified, though, uh, even though an Amber Alert wasn't issued right away. Yeah, so it was finally issued at about 3.20 on the afternoon of um the day she disappeared, which was Monday, October 15th, which that was something that we discussed a lot in the dossier, like the hour at which she went missing. That was just a really odd time, one o'clock in the morning on a Monday morning. So yeah, so it took all the way up until 3.20 p.m. that afternoon to get that Amber Alert for her. Well, and is it still, Nick, isn't it still the standard that we typically don't release missing persons information until it's been 24 hours, even with minors? Yeah, <clears throat> I mean, there are different criteria for... You know Amber, more about this than I do. Well, but, Amber Alerts, yeah. and we even have now have alerts for, you know... Elder abuse, we have, like, the silver exactly. alerts. <laughs> I, I think it is called silver alerts. And so in instances like that, I, the rules are slightly different. But, yeah, I mean, they don't do it willy-nilly. Right. right. They, they exercise, you know, some care in doing so. 
And then the days start to tick by, and they conducted massive searches of the the area. All kinds of volunteers coming in from all over the community, all over different parts of that part of the state. Hundreds of volunteers started a, a foot search. Things I recall from researching, the drug use in that part of the state, it's high enough where they actually instructed people to be cautious of paraphernalia and needles and things like that as they were searching. And they're also checking out the people who show up for these search parties to see if they might be possibly involved. That brings us, Heather, to October 22nd, about a week into the investigation. This is when we finally get two vehicles that might be associated with what police are are sticking to is an abduction at that point. Right. So they started looking for a red or orange Dodge Challenger and a black Ford Edge or black Acura MDX. And those were the vehicles that were traveling nearby the house when they kept trying to get people to leave. I don't even know at this point if they ever found out who those vehicles were actually owned by, if they had anything to do with anything, or if they were just looky-loos. I don't remember hearing anything else about them. I, I know it turns out that they drove, the deputies drove by the person who ends up arrested for this. They just missed him. They drove right by him as he was leaving with Jamie, I think, in the trunk. I think they were just trying to get some information out there at that point. Like, it's... Um, almost a week afterwards at that point. But again, no license plate information. They were added, though, to the Amber Alert for Jamie, which was kind of renewed. suspect vehicles or updated. Yeah. The sheriff, in this case, released a statement on Facebook on October 23rd. Investigators are addressing several things, several items that were found during a search for clues. But as with any search of any area, you're going to find a whole bunch of stuff and you got to figure out how much of this is related to the case, if any of it. And then, too, the tips start coming in. So thousands of tips come in from all over the state, all over the country. Some of them maybe useful a little bit, perhaps, but most of them probably not. So this is obviously a very small part of Wisconsin. Yep, the county is only about 45,000 people. I've actually litigated at least one case in Barron County, so I've been to the courthouse. I I think it's a two- or three-judge courthouse. I think it's a two-judge courthouse. Very small. Rice Lake is the county seat. Uh, Very small. So these resources that were utilized, you know, I mean, Nick and I are in Madison, which is basically the second biggest city in Wisconsin. Our police resources are significantly more substantial than the Barron County Sheriff's Department. I mean, they were probably maxed out. This is not the normal kind of thing that they are prepared or equipped to deal with. Now, I mean, it's also true that really no law enforcement agency is prepared to deal for a case sort of this extreme and of this type. But, you know, a rural county sheriff's department is, you know, this is not the kind of case that they are well, dealing with. There's not like a ton of homicides. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, with, with smaller populations, you're simply going to have, you know, less less often you'll have crimes with this level of violence. So, but I, I'm sure you guys will tell us more about there were law enforcement resources from, you know, far and wide that got involved here over time. There aren't a lot of murders or crimes like of this degree that happened there, but then to put all these factors together, the home invasion the double murder, the kidnapping all at once. Like, Scott keeps stressing, like, this is not a case that you hear about, like, ever. <laughs> I've never right. heard of those things go together before. <laughs> well, it's a confluence. Those are all the rarest violent crimes. Right. The home invasion, abduction of a child from the home, mm-hmm. a double murder. 
a kidnapping, yeah. all that in one case. It's, it's crazy. Nightmare fuel. Yeah. yeah. Yes. It really is. This is the time, though, in the investigation about a week later where they brought in the FBI. Mm -hmm. So they did have all kinds of resources from the state and from the FBI. This is where always happens. Never fails. Once a case this prominent goes on for long enough, you start to see the sightings of Jamie across the country. Yeah, People start calling in from Florida. Always Florida. Always Florida. <laughs> Victims always in Florida. And all over the state of Wisconsin, too. So y y as law enforcement, this is an area of the investigative process I really sympathize with because how much weight do you give it? It could be Jamie. She could be trafficked. She could be somewhere else in the country, anywhere else in the country right now. But uh, you don't want to chase blind alleys in different time zones, obviously, too. It's really such a double-edged sword, the high publicity of a case like that, that on the one hand, you have so much more opportunity to learn legitimate leads and information. But on the other hand, you lose so much time chasing down weak leads because you want to leave no stone unturned. Right. And even in a case like this that you know came to have pretty extraordinary resources devoted to it, there is still a finite amount yeah. of every resource of, you know, I'm not going to say man hour, human hour, you know, there's only so many law enforcement, there is a finite number of law enforcement available. So there is only so much they can do. Um, and it's clearly an, you know, an incredible challenge for them to sift and winnow the information they've got coming in um, and, and, you know, try to use their time, time wisely. Mid-November, the FBI starts looking at surveillance videos. Yeah, about 80 surveillance videos were collected from, like, businesses and other locations in the area, according to the Barron County Sheriff's um, officer, who was actually leading this investigation the entire time, Fitzgerald. And during the week of November 5th, the FBI expanded the perimeter of the surveillance video collection beyond the county as if they, like, as they were searching for clues in Jamie's disappearance. Um, as mentioned earlier, investigators were searching for two cars. We talked about that already that may have been near the house, Jamie's house. So I think what they were doing with the surveillance cameras was trying to find find out if those two vehicles were ever near her house at any other time, who was in them, that, that sort of thing. Um, so many people questioned their, I don't know, like, exactly how to word it, but questioned their ability to investigate this case, saying, you know, it was four minutes from the time the 911 call was placed to the time you got there. How did you not see them get away? Well, apparently they went, all the squad cars came from one direction, and he fled the other direction with Jamie, from what I'm understanding. Also, like, this is not a densely populated area. The fact that the response right. was that quick is actually, I mean, just having been there, it's just not a densely populated area. They had to traverse some time. You know, I mean, it, I think right. it was a pretty quick response, all things considered. They just missed him, too, as we said. They just missed him by a couple of minutes. Mm -hmm. uh, he was in and out really, really quickly. So we reach a point here in the investigation where I think it's... I guess my opinion, pretty objectively, though, I think it's safe to say they did a lot right in their investigation from the search to the preservation of the crime scene. There just wasn't a whole lot of evidence. And they reached a point about mid-November where they were looking for every – they brought specialized dogs. They're going through all the dash cam video. Tips, chasing down tips. I was just going to say at. they were still going through all the tips. Like what was it, 25 to 30 a day? That they yeah. were receiving, and they were still weeding them, weeding through them. You know, they weren't 
like Jessa said, they weren't leaving stones unturned. They were and using the a lot of resources for it. Worked together at Jenny O, mm -hmm. which is the turkey processing plant in Barron, Wisconsin yeah. there. They both worked together side by side for years, but there was a theory that, you know, obviously maybe there's a love triangle involvement in there and uh, something, you know, went wrong there. So they're looking into all these different things, but they never got close to, I don't think, to being able to close this case. You know, as no. we'll find out. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't, I don't think they did. <laughs> I mean, Jamie was her own best advocate here, as we'll find out in a, in a minute. But there's nothing really uh, that jumps out as like malfeasant that, that the investigators failed to do that I can tell from the outside. It was but just a weird case. Yeah. I mean, he, he planned it out. And there's, you know, at least at this moment in time, because there was not a trial and because there really wasn't any, there may not have been any at all, um, but no significant you know, pre-plea litigation motion work, we don't have some of the level of insight that we might otherwise into the nitty gritty of what did and did not happen. But, you know, based on what I've studied and learned about this case, it appears that law enforcement were doing their job yeah. and they, you know, this was just a, an extraordinarily difficult case, an unusual case. Um, but yeah, they, it is my understanding that they had no, you know, Jake Patterson wasn't a suspect before the day that Jamie Kloss essentially rescued herself. Right. So I don't want to like hijack things or jump ahead, but I think you're right. I, I think he was not on their radar. As best we can tell, he's telling the truth and everyone's account kind of matches here where he never interacted with Jamie personally. He never met either of the two parents. He didn't knock on their door. I can't think of a case like that where it's a total stranger. The Elizabeth Smart case is similar, but the guy was like a handyman. He'd been inside the house even before. This was a total stranger, never interacted with either of the two parents or the daughter, as best we can tell. And you're right, because of the way this, this went down, we may or may not ever be able to find out what happened fully. But just to kind of wrap up and, and uh, the, the remaining, because there's not a whole lot from November through the first part of January. I mean, the investigation goes on. They keep holding press conferences. Obviously, the small town in Wisconsin is coming to terms with what in the world might be going on right now. Is this person still among us? Are kids safe? All of Jamie's classmates. So they hold vigils and they have a lot of local awareness and a lot of local support, it seemed like, too, from the family, yeah. for the family, which is really cool from the community. But the last possible thing you're expecting, maybe, uh, certainly the last thing I was expecting, is on January 10th, about 2, 3, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, Jamie finds a way to escape from where she's being held at a cabin, which is about, if memory serves, two hours north from Barron on the way to, to uh, Duluth. And she finds a neighbor. Neighbor calls 911, and they shortly afterwards arrest the suspect, uh, Jamie, who is, you know, 13, Skinny, wearing shoes that didn't fit her, disheveled, obviously not in a great physical state, but all in all, in pretty good shape for the circumstances. Certainly she's alive. They arrest Patterson. They jail him on kidnapping and homicide charges. And there was no significant manhunt at all. I think they found him right away. And that's uh, because she knew where to point them. I mean, she yeah, provided that info. He was out looking for her when they found him. Because he had gone back and realized that she had escaped, if I have that right. And so he was cruising around looking for her when the officer 
pulled him over and he surrendered himself without incident. So she is, you know, hospitalized and then released to her, her aunt, her mom's sister. And at this point, I remember we're all scrambling to, we're all getting over the fact that Jamie is first alive and also, you know, the circumstances of this case, it just can't be that she never interacted with this guy. It can't yeah. be that he didn't work in town or he didn't uh, he didn't interact with the parents or anything like that. But the more that comes out from the police over the next few days, the more it looks like it's a random yeah. home abduction of a minor mm -hmm. and a double murder. And then she's found alive. I can't. She I'm, saves I'm not herself. Sure. <laughs> she saves herself. I'm not sure if you could find a confluence of events, a similar case exactly like this one. It really is a remarkable. If it, it's one of those cliches where if you pitched it to Hollywood, I'm not sure if they'd buy it. That's where here shortly we're going to turn things over to you guys. But Heather, uh, just kind of wrapping up the process of following this, what did you take away from Jamie's ordeal in the case? Well, I usually don't judge a book by its cover, if you will. But when Scott originally heard about this um, disappearance, this kidnapping, I didn't know anything about it. He actually texts me one day and he's like, hey, did you hear about Jamie and Klaus? Blah, 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 blah. And then he sends me her picture. And immediately we just start spewing off what we think happened, like, you know, true crime world. You know, we're like, oh, this is what happened. Then this is what happened. Da, 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 da. Well, when we started doing our dossier, I even mentioned like, hey, you know, she is a 13 year old girl, you know just going off of experience with Jason's daughter who just turned 15, how she's always on her phone, always interacting yeah. with people. I just started saying like different things that could have happened, different things that may have happened. You know, you see it all the time. They meet people online, they trust them, they try to let them in their home. Maybe something happened and her dad didn't want her leaving with this guy, you know, just stuff like that. I'm just like, spewing spitballing off these little theories. Yeah. And I was completely freaking wrong. And I'm just like, nope, not doing that anymore. When I heard that she'd been found, my wife texted me because it was we're, we're next to you guys in Wisconsin. We're not too far away. So it was kind of breaking news in the Twin Cities metro area as well. So my wife texted me. I was at a hockey game with a sheriff's deputy. And so at least in talking about things through the initial events with him, I got some professional justification of my belief. Like, is this can't be possible. Like, this is... The statistical odds of this are mm -hmm. too much. It was blowing my mathematical mind. Well, and you're not wrong about that. I mean, these, you know, these stranger abductions are very rare. Very rare. The, it, all of it, the home invasion, the violence with somebody who had no criminal history, which we'll probably talk about in the next one. But, you, you, I mean, mm -hmm. it's just, you know, I think he ultimately gives a statement in which he just describes having seen her get off the bus one day. Well, all these things, all these variables that we're talking about right now are why it attracted such worldwide attention. Because here's one perspective. Thank God things like this are rare. Sure. Because, you know, so it, it is rare. It is uncommon. But it is the stuff of nightmares. It appears to be something approaching totally random, the kind of thing that I think... You know, we like to imagine that we can make good choices and keep ourselves safe, and perhaps we can in the main, you know, from from things more common than this. But if you're in your own home at almost 1 o'clock in the morning and asleep or, you know, the front door's locked, et cetera, et cetera, like, what more can you do? How can you protect yourself right. from 
someone you don't even know, who you have no apparent connection to. So, I mean, this is this is a version uh, of everyone's nightmare. It, it, it's terrifying. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and for the sake of, we, we just didn't think it was important to go into some of the details that we know about from where people were in the house as people were being shot and things like that. Yeah. But it's terrifying. It's horrifying yes. as a parent or just, you know, as anybody to know w what little we do know about what happened in that short time inside that that house. Uh, just unimaginable. And, and we're even, kind of even once she was abducted and held in his home, how she had to live yeah, there. That's terrifying. Exactly. Too. It, it was. That was terrible as well. Obviously, one thing I do want to share in my own personal observation of this whole process, um, I think the media behaved OK with this particular case relatively to how crazy some of the things get. But I remember the first photo of her I saw. The first photo of her that was circulated when she went missing was, and it's going to be tough to describe with audio, but it's her at probably about 12, not much younger than she was when she went missing. And she's looking, her head's tilted downward, and she's looking upward, and she's got this smile on her face. And it's almost like... She's looking into uh, your soul. It's it's a disturbing kind of a smile. It just happens to be the angle. It just happens to be... But that was the only photo of Jamie Kloss that was circulated for like a week. And from that photo, you know, you apply Occam's razor. Both parents are dead. She's missing. And there's this picture of her that looks like a disturbed... Frankly, just a disturbed child. Now, since you've seen photos, countless photos, videos, live action videos of her since she's been found. Sweetest, youngest, you know, nice girl, normal girl, but that one picture, the one that they circulated right away, I realized afterwards f entirely formed my opinion yeah. about the case, probably to some degree up until the time they found her. Definitely right away there initially, I jumped to a conclusion. This, is it possible that this 13-year-old girl shot her parents? That was to my run away thought. with her boyfriend that she met on the internet? That's exactly no, I what I thought. I can't say I'm, I'm not proud of that thought. I'm well, not, obviously well, now, I'm not proud of having that, that thought. I think that that's actually something that's very self-reflective and very insightful. Because let me kind of give you the defense attorney response to that. One of the things that Nick and I so regularly do with our cases when they get press is send photos other than mugshot photos of our clients to the press. Because we know that when people see a visual aid, and that's the only visual context they have... They do make those assumptions. And I think that that's a really natural and human reaction. And, you know, I'll be, you were honest about that. I'll be honest about that, too. I mean, my, our whole office speculated about what was going on there. I mean, we do all know the story of Elizabeth Smart. We know the Patty Hearst story. We know, you know, like, there's some precedent about sort of complicity or arguments about complicity of a victim within abduction and being saved or found later, you know, the, like we do have a tense history with that in America, I guess I'd say. And I, I think we all kind of talked about that and prosecutors and defense attorneys alike, certainly sure. while it was going on. I mean, absolutely. Well, and the longer it goes on, I think some of this is simply human nature. And I think that makes it understandable, but depending on, you know, sort of where we sit in this system, we need, and, and perhaps all of us, need to be careful with that and need to check that. Because, you know, it's one thing if we're simply looking at it from the outside, 
um, reading, you know, consuming, you know, news reports about it to speculate. We're really not harming anyone in that capacity, especially if you're not in the community. You're unlikely to ever be a potential, you know, juror, for example. Right. I don't think us talking about it at lunch in our office hurts four anybody. hours away. Really right. Or anybody, anybody, you know, or on the water cooler over their dinner table or what have you. But, I mean, if you are a person who works in the criminal justice system in any capacity, I think one needs to be very careful with that kind of understandable, you know, perhaps natural human tendency, uh, because you need to check yourself. You can't, you know, take action based off of just assumptions. And something that is hard to do, because again, I think it is a natural, you know, human tendency. But this is something Jess and I talk about. Law enforcement in particular needs to check assumptions they may have that are not based on information or evidence that they've collected in the case, because that can lead to confirmation bias and and sort of going down the wrong wrong path and, and missing evidence. So, you know, that is both understandable but something I think we need to be cognizant of. So, you know, kudos to you for, you know, sort of recognizing that. Well, it's a great case that you can keep in your back pocket, me personally, and say, remind yourself occasionally, you don't know Jack. You don't <laughs> yeah. know what's going on. Right. You don't, Correct. Yeah, this is, and I hear you guys talk about this all the time. And obviously from your perspective, you think about it a lot more than the rest of us do. But when on the news, we hear someone has been arrested. I think it's just human nature. That guy's guilty. Why yeah. would the police arrest him? Yeah. You know, why would the I don't do that anymore. Well, not, maybe not so much anymore. <laughs> like I used to of, because I wanted to be a DA for the longest time, probably until I was like 16 or 17. I wanted to be a DA. That's all I wanted. And then seriously, since like really getting into the podcasting world and definitely since listening to Getting Off, I'm like, oh, my God, I've been so wrong. And Jason's like, I've been telling you for years. And I'm like, OK, but back up for a second. Listen to this. <laughs> Well, and also learning just how investigations are conducted. Yes. And this is not an indictment of the police. I'm, by and large, a huge fan of law enforcement. Mm-hmm. But there are cases, and they tend to be cases that fall into our wheelhouse and my wheelhouse is, is cases that we end up covering because cold cases are sometimes cold for reasons relating to the investigation that was conducted, sure. how well it was conducted mm-hmm. or not. I I've, I've found myself sucked in right into that, that bias. I, yeah, so... I hope I never forget the Jamie Kloss case professionally because I could not have been more wrong publicly and privately from the start mm-hmm. to when it was actually Same. resolved. That's a good reminder for all of us to hold on to. Again, it's probably harmless you know, for someone watching from a distance. But then again, right. we all will be called to jury service at some point in our lives. Now, Jess and I may never actually wind up on a jury. Sadly. By virtue of what we do for a living. But, you know, any citizen of the United States may be called for jury service at some point. And so I think it is worth all of us keeping in mind that we you don't know until you know. You know, I mean, like, you can sit there and imagine and say, oh, it could be this, it could be that, or, you know, any, anything under the sun. But, I mean, this case is a total outlier. It's a rare, scary, uncommon thing, and thank goodness for that. But it probably would have been hard to, for most people, to imagine that, you know, what happened here, what turned out to be the truth, was the story all along. Like, I, I doubt many folks had that in mind. And so... And, Heather, I take your point as well. And, and Jess and I talk about this frequently. The media, we have a lot of gripes about how the media covers 
the media's done a pretty good job about in the, in the past few years talking about like high level criminal justice sort of policy issues, but the way the media covers cases, individual cases and trials has been problematic, it remains problematic. And so, Heather, I totally clap and support what you just said. We should all check ourselves. When somebody is charged, we should all say, we'll see. And we should not simply take the immediate media coverage as the gospel truth, because, of course, there's a very limited amount of information that the media has at the outset. And here's the really important point. The information that the media has about a case at the beginning is all coming to them from government documents, document like, like a charging document that is written by the government to, of course— Make a person, you know, it, to make not, the government's case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it has to, at a minimum, to have probable cause in it, and it's oftentimes going to have a great deal more than that. Now, but that is a one-sided, by literally, by definition, one-sided depiction of part of what happened, and so we we should all check ourselves. We don't know. Even if a criminal complaint becomes public, like in, in this instance, the charging document, the criminal complaint yeah. in the case, became public quite quickly because it was such a notorious case long before uh, she rescued herself. So, you know, almost anybody could read the criminal complaint very quick, quickly within its filing, and so that can did contain a lot of information, and that's fine. But it is a one-sided depiction of things. And it's not evidence. It's the, the document itself is not evidence. It contains, it is hearsay. Now, what is in it could wind up being evidence someday, but it is a hearsay representation of potential evidence. This is probably a good spot to get into all that. We're going to send you guys off to the Getting Off podcast. Go search that out in your favorite podcast catcher, iTunes, Stitcher, all that good stuff. And uh, you want to subscribe anyway and get caught up on all those back episodes. But part two of this conversation with Jess and Nick is going to be on the court proceedings. There wasn't, you know, like a prolonged court uh, thing with this case, but there are some interesting things that they want to talk to us about. Yeah, that's what I have opinions. (laughs) (laughs) The way that the prosecution of Jake Patterson played out was also unusual. There's a good teaser for you. Hop on over for getting off to getting off. Thanks for listening to Status Pending. Thanks for having us, guys. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for coming.